Theological Seminary, part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, as always, Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and academic dean, and we're kind of running a, a, a smaller crew today. Yeah. It's just the two of us. Yeah, we've got two people in classes, yeah. one person out of town. Yeah. Yeah. So just just the two of us today. That's okay. We'll have to make do with the dream team, as I like to think of it. <laughs> just the two of us. <laughs> well, we're talking today about further habits for surviving seminary. In particular, we're going to talk about reading, reading habits, which yeah. is a big part of seminary. Yeah, it is a big part. It's a big part of um, not only beginning this this journey of learning theology and learning how to be a minister and how to do that work. But also it's going to be a skill that you learn off. So many people will learn in seminary and then will need to rely on over the course of their lives. Yeah. And I, one of the ways I kind of think about it at the seminary level, but at the general level is reading, reading is an extension of conversation. It, mm-hmm. it is, yeah. it is not distinct from uh, just ordinary communicative events. We, we're constantly trying to get our thoughts across to other people, to understand what other people are saying in order to get things done. And so some of the same skills, reading is different, but some of the same skills or the same goals that yeah. you attach to just uh, conversing with other people, to uh, preaching, to teaching, to learning, yeah. those same skills apply to reading. Um, and you just have to kind of convert them a bit for an asynchronous textual kind of methodology. Uh, but it, it it is just understanding other people in the end. Yeah, it is it is a skill, isn't it? It's, and it's one that, you know, I think we've maybe started to lose in terms of reading long-form yep. material. And it's one that if you're in seminary, of course, you're going to have to get back that skill if you've lost it, if you've, if you've found yourself over the years only reading blogs and Twitter feeds, then you may have lost some of that ability for sustained concentration. Um, but it's a worthwhile skill, even if it's hard and it's and it's countercultural. It's a worthwhile skill to maintain. I think it doesn't just not not just because you'll get new information and you'll engage with new voices, but it actually helps you think, like you just said, you know, thinking across a variety of platforms, whether you're speaking or, or writing yourself or putting together, organizing your own thoughts. You know, reading is a skill that you, you need, you need to have, you know, be able to sustain that for longer than just a thousand words. Yeah, and I think a lot, and again, I think particularly some like stumbling blocks in seminary because a lot of times our assignments, you know, you think about the syllabus, you think about what you have to do to complete the class and your goal at some point becomes because of time constraints, because of uh, uh different assumptions about what we're trying to accomplish when we read. Our goal becomes getting information out of the book, mining the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's an important part of the process, of course, but it doesn't make for good charitable reading. Um, I've become, I kind of started to hear myself say the word engagement a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we really were aiming for is engagement in the conversation, that, that I understand what's what the author is saying i'm able to relay it in a way to back to them or to another person and i'm able to take that material and not just 
not just memorize it, not just uh, be able to, to, to talk back to them, but I've engaged it in such a way that it's actually become constructive and formative, even if I disagree yeah. in my own thinking, in my own life, in my own vision for the world, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's very dialogical. Um, I notice when I'm picking up something that's totally brand new, you know, a, a discipline or an area of expertise that's totally new to me, that's the hardest part about the reading is you're stepping into a conversation and you don't you don't know what came before, you don't know what came out, what's coming after. You don't have the context for it. And you have to kind of populate that. And you make mistakes even. You'll think, oh, they seem to be interested in this. Oh, no, they're not. They're not interested in that at all. They're actually interested in this thing over here. That's, I mean, I think when you're reading in seminary or for any class for that matter, it's important to understand, try to get a sense of how the professor's using the readings. Mm -hmm. I, I noticed the way that I use them uh, usually is a way of filling out a conversation. I, I, I do, as I think about it, my pedagogy would be that I think about the, the lecture as the main line of the class, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's me giving them uh, the amount of information that they need to be able to move forward mm-hmm. in this area, whether it's Isaiah Malachi or Hebrew or Targumic Aramaic or whatever, and let them know where I fall out and how I'm making decisions, and then when they go to read, Lord willing, they're going to hear more people talking in this conversation, more people in this space. Right. But now they're not just starting from scratch because they've been sitting in class and they've had me walk them through mm-hmm. the values, the issues, the stuff that's coming up. So that as they delve into you know more intricate, because you can go much deeper in a written piece than you can just in a lecture format, you know. Right. So they can dig more deeply, but they're not just, it's not as if they just arrived in this land off of a boat and they have right. no idea what right. the native, you know, what the people locally are speaking. Yeah. They've had someone kind of introduce them in a friendly way and yeah. walk them through the top, through the issues. And that way, hopefully they're going to retain more in this, you know, they'll be able to engage with the text more. And then, like you said, be able to then become participants in the conversation, right. both articulating like what's the author saying right. and also like what are some of the implications of what the author's saying and, and where might I agree, where might I disagree? What are the, you know, what's the decisions that they're making that may or may not be consistent, you know, and start to actually interact with as someone who has a mastery, not just someone who's citing. One of the things I don't want my students to do is just walk away and be able to just cite a bunch of people as if that's what it means to know a topic. I want to be able to interact with the ideas. Yeah, Yeah, that's so important. And again, like the conversation bit, a lot of times, especially in seminary, you you find yourself in a conversation that's kind of over your head uh, or that's that's you, you don't know the language. You don't know the game of this, of how this kind of topic works. And you've got You've got to learn it. Um, yeah. So I, I like I like what you do in the classroom because because what you're what you're essentially doing is giving them enough knowledge to engage that conversation. A lot of times you're going to jump into Ritterboss or Targumic Aramaic, and you're just you're just not going to know, you know uh, what the the features of the and the language of the conversation is, and you've got to learn them on the fly and then go back and read again 
No, in that case, I think Ritterboss is easier than Targuma Garamay. Yeah, sorry. That's sorry. Right. Yeah. Well, um, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I mean, like all the words that we use, like esch- yeah. eschatological, yeah. redemptive historical, historia salutis forces ordo salutis. There's a history behind those that language. Yep. There's a yeah. reason why we're talking about that. And if you're not familiar or if you're only passingly familiar with that, you're not going to get the full depth of the conversation. Yeah. That shouldn't discourage you. Yeah. You go back, you know, as you have more and more it's just like learning how a sport works or yeah. how a hobby works as you is oh, you get into that section of youtube that's all about beekeeping and suddenly you learn how <laughs> beekeeping works you know that, but enough uh, about me <laughs> right, right um so yeah i just had a interesting i just had a conversation i was coming out of a class and it was this was kind of an intro level class um provided for lay people and um, afterwards, a woman came up and said, you, you keep saying doctrine and theology, and in the church that I came from, doctrine was the teaching of Scripture, but theology was kind of like... What I, what I understood her saying was something like uh, traditionalism. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the bad thing. Like it's how some people use religion, mm-hmm. particularly if they're saying you know, Christianity is a not relationship, a not yeah. a religion. Yeah. You know, and part of it is being aware that you're coming into this conversation with a bunch of other conversations that you've had and being aware of that and, and, and letting yourself be a bit of a missionary in a new land. Right. And, and realize the way I use this term may not be the way that the author is using the term, you know, and to let yourself be, con- you know, to be changed a bit. Yeah. Right. To change your lexicon a little bit. Yeah. And grow and, yeah. and broaden. I guess there's two there's two things I think of that that will help you do that well, especially when you're reading something unfamiliar. You know, you pick up Harry Potter at the bookstore. That's part of your that's part of our culture. That's that's immediate. You, you, there's not as much work required. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For us, if you're living in in the culture that produced a particular the culture and time that produced a particular work, it doesn't require as much study to no. understand. But right. if you're studying something that is foreign to yours, not a part of your background, the two things I think you need, at least, are charity and context. You need mm-hmm. to understand, first of all, you need to, you need to have charity. Okay, words might be wor- being used differently than I use them. It, it, they may come out of some sort of subculture, like, like the distinction between doctrine and theology. Mm-hmm. That's not a distinction I would make, yeah, right. but it's... But I can see how that might arise in a particular church with a particular set of ways of talking about things. And so I read charitably to understand, okay, what do they mean by that? What, how are they using the word? And then that helps me then to engage them in conversation. And then the second skill being, you know, context. Nothing's written in a vacuum, um, particularly if you're approaching something that was written, you know, in the 1900s. The theological issues were different. The questions and the answers were different. It doesn't mean it's not valuable today. We, mm-hmm. we assign some of these works because we're heirs to this conversation, and we believe that right. these moments in history are important for understanding who we are and where we are. But the issues are different, and that requires me to understand a little bit of history, a little bit of culture, and how the issues of the day might have played out differently than how they play out now. Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, you can, if you think about it long enough, you realize the incredible innovation that writing is, yeah. that that by sitting down with these symbols on the page, you can access this mind of another mm. person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but I think that's also part of it. When we don't acknowledge how amazing and incredible what's actually happening is, people, particularly those who struggle maybe with, um, you know, that kind of 
you know, uh, that kind of interface, kind of a visual semantic interface, they maybe don't realize why it's so difficult and why it's so hard. But I think even, you know, there are people who have reading disabilities and there are also just, just people who are as humans wrestling with accessing another mind. It's really an incredible thing. And that's why, again, to go back to it, it takes practice, it takes skill, yeah. it takes something that you go back to over and over again and you need to find what works for you because we're all interfacing with these in different ways. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about that. Like with, um, because sometimes actually, you know, yeah, yeah, sometimes it's me needing context, me needing to read charitably, but sometimes actually the writing is bad. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a, and oftentimes people I love because I love their content, yeah. I hate their writing. And that's, yeah. that's actually <laughs> allowing myself to say that at some point, realizing in my studies, I don't like the way they write or I don't like the way they're translated, not to mention Ritterboss again. I don't like the way it's translated, right. but I, I love the material. It's worth it. Yeah. Like spend your time in it. Yeah. It's worth it. But man, it's a slog. It's a slog. <laughs> and, and that's when it's really helpful to read in community. Yeah. I, I remember trying to process my you know first year seminary, trying to process the things that Van Til was saying, because our professors would assign just a lot of yeah. Van Til. And it's yeah. just the issues were so foreign. The language the language was okay for me because I had a, had, came out of a um, bachelor's in philosophy, but how he was using using it was just very, yeah. very difficult. He's got difficult. his own lexicon. He's yeah, got he's, got, he's making up words. So, <laughs> you know, it's very difficult to understand, but it was having folks like... Bill Edgar, yeah. having John Frame uh, and, and some of his books interact and engage, you know, yeah. as, as actually broadening the conversation actually helps me better appropriate what's that's going a, on in that That's moment. a good way of thinking about it, too. Yeah, broadening the conversation often elucidates things that were previously, yeah. you know, inaccessible. And I, and I think that's a key part to reading in seminary. Um, when you start, I was just talking to a group of students who have just started seminary and they're talking about how hard the reading is right. and it is it's really hard early on usually by year two though you start to pick up pace mm -hmm. because these things that were previously you know difficult inaccessible you know hard slogs to get through you suddenly start seeing them in context you've had a broad enough conversation that you start to feel a little bit more at ease with some of the themes mm -hmm. and the motifs. Mm -hmm. You can move a little bit more quickly. You can skip, you know, you can skim that paragraph where he's, you know, the author is reflecting on somebody else's work because you know right. that other person's work. Right. You know, um, it, it, you can start to pick up speed just like you do when acquiring a language. You right. know, as you learn how to talk in a group, it gets it gets faster exponentially as you move further down. We, talk, the road. we talked a little bit about that in the last episode. I mm -hmm. think the importance of it, it, and here we're on kind of not just reading in general, but surviving seminary yeah. is the importance of skimming. Like how do you direct students in that regard? What's the, how do, how do you help them to know, okay, I need to read this deeply or ver versus look, I've got, I've, I've got the basic argument here. I can kind of keep moving. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, for me, reading is often often happens in a couple of runs at the material. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about a chapter or an article, or, or even a book for that matter, um, if if I'm, I mean, if I've got all the time in the world, all things being equal, 
Right, which you're not asking this question then about skimming then. You just you find a quiet place and really take your time and, mm -hmm. and, and cherish <laughs> you cherish the act of reading. I love that. That's how I read most yeah. novels, and uh, that's how I read when I don't have deadlines. Yeah. Right, and, I, and that's a wonderful thing, to just kind of sit and let yourself be coaxed along through an idea. Mm -hmm. It's a very yeah. different mindset. Absolutely. Thought, you're, you're, yeah. you're savoring it. You're enjoying it. Which you might not feel. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's how we all would want to do it. Yeah, but by the by a fireplace. Right, but say you've got you know three thousand pages to read between now and May. Um, you know, how do you handle that? And for some people, that might be easy. For me, it's not. I'm a slower reader. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not slow, but I'm slower. I've watched. You know, my wife and I, if we're reading something together, she'll be at the end of the page about thirty percent faster than me. You mm -hmm. know, that's, that's yeah. the way. It, the way that's the way it goes. Um, so for me, yeah, I, I, you, know, you got to go through and I think discern the outline of the argument and you can do that pretty quickly with well-written material, introductory yeah. chapters and that kind of thing. Get the flow. Get the flow. Know where this is going. Yep. Get, get to the end. I mean, I love, I love reading a conclusory paragraph <clears throat> of an article pretty early in my process yeah. of reading it yeah. just so I can get a sense of, okay, where are they going? And that helps me. Um, yeah, discern and filter as I'm as I'm reading through the rest of the material. Now there there are some. I mean, to be honest, there are some works though that you just have to. They're just so dense. They're so everything in it is gold. You know, there's a nugget that you can't skim. You know, but a lot of a lot of writing, particularly I wouldn't say at the seminary level, but particularly at that kind of mid level. I'm you know I don't want to name any websites or publishers, uh, <laughs> you know, because this is not a pejorative thing for me. I actually think it's a very important task, but that kind of mid intellectual level, right. in other words, it's not high academics, it's not new material, but it's usually a processing of older ideas for a popular audience mm -hmm. type thing that mm -hmm. most Christian publishing is built around. Um, a lot of that work in includes, most of that work includes a lot of repetition and cycling through very common ideas that, that everyone has access to. So yeah. those those books are easier to skim. But yeah, if you get into uh, you get into some dense academic work, you really do just need to set aside the time and plow through it. How often do you follow footnotes? Um, I'm not a, a well. First of all, um, I'm I'm clearly in team footnote and not in team endnote. Well, I um, just took you that as a that, given. Yeah. Given the fact that you're a a good person, <laughs> a moral person. I'm a decent individual. Um, yeah, I. How often do I follow footnotes? Um, in my field, if I'm reading technically in my field, which is linguistic and textual, footnotes are super important. Like they're almost as, yeah. as important as the paper, yeah. because that's where a lot of the actual textual arguments are being made. Usually, the art, the body of the work is summarizing mm -hmm. what's going on at the bottom of the page, mm -hmm. and. Um, Sometimes it's it's completely out of hand. You know, I've read articles where there's three sentences of prose and then the rest of the page, three lines of prose right. on the body, and right. then the rest of the page is just footnotes. Right. I'm like, okay, we could have we could have done excessive. a little bit more right. <laughs> intellectual uh, archaeology here, I think, uh, before. But anyways, um, yeah, I mean, I. I let myself, particularly on my first run through an article, I'll let myself be casual about footnotes mm -hmm. because I really am trying to get the main idea. Mm -hmm. um, that When you start going back and questioning where did they zig where I would have zagged or where did they make a key seminal decision that 
decides the rest of the argument. Mm -hmm. And I need to make sure I judge the validity of that decision. Like that's that's when I go back and start spending more time in footnotes. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I like that. That's that's maps to my process as well. And one thing I would tell you know that that I think it's important to understand, especially if you're kind of doing academic writing for the first time, is that you cannot trust another author's yeah. Yeah. view of you know if 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 you're hearing what so and so thinks about Kant. You, and it's an important part of the argument, you do need to follow, in general, mm -hmm. uh, you know, time constraints and all that kind of stuff. Right. But it's g best practices, you gotta follow those footnotes because right. Right. You know, you, you'll find something as, as simple as they missed a negation, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the sentence, and they're actually saying exactly the opposite of what yeah. of what the author thinks they're saying. Yep, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, you can't, particularly, and if you're gonna engage with something and actually produce your own work on it, this is a this is an aside. This is more about writing now. Yeah, um, yeah. You can't trust their footnotes. I tell my students this. You can't just look and say, "Well, he said this word in quotes," and then the footnote points me to page two forty three of this other author's right, work. Right. You need to go have eyes on page. Yep. Do know? not pass. Do not pass along other people's footnotes. Yep, yep. that's right. And uh, to to your to your great detriment, if you get busted. Because right. <laughs> right. it's not only sci it, it is. I, I guess it's a form of plagiarism, though. You don't usually hear anyone accuse of that kind of plagiarism, but it's definitely a form of sloppiness. Yeah, it's. I, I think. Yeah, they would be. You'd be accused of sloppiness, and if they get, if they, you know, but if it's easy to spot because if somebody actually is doing that, right? Yeah. And you know, person A got the footnote wrong, and so, uh, um, and you passed along that wrong footnote. It got the page number wrong, and you passed right. along that wrong page number. The Person C is going to spot it. Yeah, that's right. And and know that know that you were at at best sloppy. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I I say that as somebody who, um, you know. It requires a lot of like work. Yeah. You know to go. It does, especially for older resources. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm happy. I I'm a I'm a big just going to this more. If 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 someone says something that's so succinct and well said that you really can't imagine saying it better than them or maybe it's not germane to the core of your argument yeah cite their whole material on it you right. know say for for a great discussion see footnote three yeah. under so and so you know um or as if you can't <clears throat> find the original resource or yeah. can't track it down or just don't have time you know yeah. as cited by yeah so and that's so right. and that's that, good that that way you yeah you've been intellectually honest about what you're well, what you're passing along. So now we're we're taking this this analogy, this this guiding analogy of conversation, of dialogue, of engagement. Okay, we're we're now we're now developing it more, aren't we? Because yeah. we're adding now what do you say? What are you doing mm -hmm. as you engage in it? Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the the you know the burning question of uh, not talking about sermons now, but but in in doing research, do do you do you take notes or do you not take notes? And, and, and there's a side conversation that's even more controversial. Do you mark up your book yeah. or do you not mark up your book? Yeah. Um, you, want, you, want me to, you want me to launch into this controversy? Yeah. I'm going to let you launch into it, then yeah. I'm going to critique you. I do take notes um, on, on books. Okay. I, I'm... Especially if it's for a project. Mm -hmm. I, you know, if I'm, yeah. if I'm in that space in the, in the either the big beginning space if I'm just reading a book for fun put the pencil away 
Um, if I'm reading a book, if it's that kind of intermediate spot of like, this is, this is kind of in my field, but I'm kind of reading it for fun. Yeah. Uh, then I might have a pencil in hand, yeah. but if I'm reading for a project or to engage that conversation, I will have you a have pencil. To, yeah. I'll have a notepad. Um, so no index cards for you. No index cards. I, I use Zotero. We, I mm-hmm. mentioned that, yeah. you know, in the the previous podcast, I'll take notes into Zotero. I usually actually just use my notebook. Mm. And if it's my book, I will, um, I will mark it up with a pencil. I have mm-hmm. a, I have a whole low profile annotation method. I don't underline. Oh. I kind of like dots, and dots and yeah. sigla. a lot of dots and slashes. <laughs> it looks like Acadian. Oh, <laughs> a Masora. <laughs> Masora Kinas. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I think note, particularly with its, if it's stuff you you need to engage with academically, yeah. I love taking notes. It's easy I, to get bogged down. It is. One, I mean, one of the ways that I developed is during my do- doctoral dissertation around the Semitics or the I Corps Library. Um, so Christian Oriental Research or something like that. Anyways, the, the Semitics Library, Catholic. They had these just stacks of it, they were olive drab. The librarian Monica Blanchard would make make these. They were olive olive drab cards. They were bigger than a normal. I don't know what the dimensions okay. were, but okay. they were the perfect dimension. Whatever they were, yeah. it was the perfect dimension. Yeah. And you'd just grab a handful of them and you'd put all your notes on there, and then you'd leave them in the book right. if you had, if you owned it. You know, and if not, then you'd, you'd keep them together, you know, paper clip them or something yeah. together. And that's actually, I when I'm getting, when I'm doing serious work, I've started to do, just use those cards. Yeah. And I just cut my own card stock. And there's something about not lined. And that way you can do, you know, if it's linguistics, you're doing paradigms or you need to do yeah. whatever. Um, so it helps. I, I, I love that. And I really love if it's a book that I own, then to just leave it in the book. Yeah. And yeah, that way, that, that way I can pull it whenever I pull it out. I mean, there's still, I've got stacks of these cards on, you know, the history of Mesopotamia <laughs> that mm-hmm. I still jump mm-hmm. back to every once in a while before I'm going into lecture because it just gives me all the info that I need to have access to right away, even if I don't have it off the top of my head. But I love, I love the notebook, uh, a thin notebook though. Yeah, a thin for notebook. Me. Yeah. And preferably with sheets you can tear out so that if once you're done, you can stick it back yeah. in that book yeah. if you own the book. Yeah. Um, I, I really do like, Owning the book, or if it's a, if it's an article, working off of the PDF. I'm not a fan of. I'm, I'm honestly not a fan of reading digital books, mm-hmm. but they're really handy for notes, and yeah. I can, and they help me not get bogged down because I can mark a little paragraph. Hey, this is important. Yeah. And then when I'm done, go back and figure out. Okay, what do I actually want permanently written down? Yeah. Um, that, that, that's you really like, helpful yeah. in kind of keeping you moving. Right, right. It doesn't slow you down. You don't have to sit down and right. take a long. And it's so easy to do on the computer. You can just highlight and, yeah. and be done. I haven't done that as much. I need to, I need to probably use, uh, I use, uh, I use Kindle mm-hmm. basically merely as just a casual reading. Yeah. I mean, I read some academic things in it, but it's not, I haven't done the highlighting yeah. and all of that stuff. Yeah. So, so I need to develop that a little bit more. Still, just a hard copy kind of person. I do. I mean, hard copy is just better than anything. Yeah. But it's not. But it's not searchable. Yeah. You, know, you can't get. It's not as easy to get access to your notes and things like that. So yeah. I, I've kind of got a hybrid approach that 
I don't. Doesn't always work. You know, and with marking up the books, I am a. I will say, I'm a born bookmarker. I did it from. I, I saw no reason not to. And these heavy underlines and brackets and yeah. stars and good point. You know, that's that was my high school, college life. Uh-huh. And then somewhere, it was somewhere during my doctoral program, I was, I was with, uh, you know, as often happens in doctoral programs, I was talking to some esoteric person okay. <laughs> who had a lot of eccentric views of things. Right. And one of her views was, books are actually not. You can buy them, but they you don't. They don't belong to you. They belong to society. Hmm. And. Uh, you have a book and you, don't, you have no idea where that book will end up and you have to think about its other audiences. And I remember being like, that's silly. And then it just bugged me and mm-hmm. I can't take notes in books anymore. You can't. I cannot do it. Okay, can I, can I try to persuade you? They go ahead. Yeah, so <laughs> let's say they are, like it is part of society, right? Yeah. Um, they are going to get passed down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my mentor, Dan McCartney, passed down a bunch of books to RTS Library and... Some of them have ended up on my shelf, okay. and so I get to yeah. I get to see he he's not a big bookmarker, Fair but enough. I get to see his notes. Yeah. My my uh, wife's grandfather had a big library of good reformed kind of commentaries and literature. Barnhouse yeah. um, was and and he would diligently mark up these books, and he would make little comments to his wife. And we get to see all that. We inherited mm-hmm. all that, and it's just kind of a part of the casual conversation around mm-hmm. the book. Yeah, I can see that. Your legacy. When it comes to, like, style. right, like a legacy Bible, the family Bible yeah. or something. I can get that. But see, so the same experience, though, led me to the opposite conclusion, which yeah. is that here at the seminary, people donate books right. all the time. And there's nothing more frustrating than getting like a great copy of a book and being excited than opening it and it's filled with highlighting. That's true. And and underlining, and you're like, I don't even know if I want to put this in the stacks now. Yeah. You know. Um, and, and and I've I've read my old notes. You know, I've read the little. <laughs> wow, I was I was I was yeah. super ignorant back then. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they looks particularly early on. I remember if I looked at my my high school notes. It looks suspiciously like the notes that my teacher was putting on my papers. Okay. They're like right. awkward. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> We're on the side. <laughs> Reword this. Um, so, no, I mean, and not, not a major thing. And actually, I, I, to, you know, to be fair, I think I still do sometimes put a little dot. Like if it's something I want to go back to, but I, I trust those, I trust the note cards now for the material. Yeah. And I'll put a dot sometimes just so I know where to head yeah. back to and grab something if I don't want to yeah. slow down right away. Yeah, my note-taking style is as minimalist as it can be. It's yeah. little dots and slashes, never in the text, yeah. always in the margins. Yeah. So it's not distracting. Right, yeah. right. All right, well, let's turn the conversation, as it were, the conversation about the conversation of reading. Let's turn it <laughs> then. Let's, let's, yeah, let's, let's develop it a little bit further, particularly in the area of research and how reading plays, what role reading plays in your research, how you engage reading, because reading for research is different than reading Harry Potter, as you yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. They both are, they're similar in the sense that you are seeing someone else's mind, mm-hmm. um, but different insofar as with research, you're trying to get something done. You're trying to accomplish something and contribute. Wow. And here, we're, I guess I'll lean into that conversation analogy 
you're trying to contribute to the conversation. You're trying to say something meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, you're not reinventing the conversation, but you want to be a meaningful contributor to this this dialogue that's going on. It's asynchronous, but it's it's still a dialogue that's been that's been going on before you got here and that will continue to go on after you got there. Right. How do you be an interesting participant in that dialogue? Um, for writing writing papers, I mean, one big key is to read appropriately, Re to, to read the people, to read broadly of the people that are engaged in that conversation. Um, I tell students, that, you know, a lot of the students for me are writing exegetical papers. And I tell them, look, Calvin is great. I love Calvin. Um, Luther is great. I love Luther. I love the ancient commentators on Scripture. Um, but if, but you also need to kind of bring the dialogue into the present tense. And so you need to be reading uh, what current authors and speakers and students of Scripture are saying, yeah. um, and to read broadly. So if if you're if you only understand the conversation as it's going on in your local community, yeah. in your neck of the woods, then you might be missing something. And so don't be afraid to read authors that you might disagree with. Don't be afraid to engage in what maybe even consider it heretical. Mm -hmm. But but these things are being said, and it's important, especially when you're writing at an academic level, to be aware of what's going on yeah. so that, and, and to read that charitably so that you can engage it meaningfully and not be, you know, blindsided. Yeah, I think, and I think that's very, that's actually very reformed to think that way. Right. Right. You know, Calvin, when he was pressed on what do we do with all the papal encyclicals and, mm -hmm. and council, you know, the council's decisions, should we just throw them all out, which is what some groups want to do? And he said, no, I mean, these are, these are writings by humans who were reading scripture and may have been illuminated by by the spirit. And so what do we do? We consider what kind of person wrote the thing. When did it happen? What were the issues they're trying to address? Yeah. You know, read it fairly. He says, interestingly, he says they're not they're not the, the word of God. So they're provisional in a way the word of God's not. And using that, that that term is really important. I think that uh, you know, the English word is used is, that's used as provisional, you know, that they're helpful but judge them according to scripture. And that's true for all your research as well, even if um, even if you're reading somebody who's way outside of your tradition and you know their tradition has all kinds of serious problems, uh, you still might be able to glean from them, at least, you know, even if you don't, you're not positively gleaning from them, you might be able to glean from them where your blind spots are and where you might be missing, missing out. And with that said, you also need to do that with people who are coming from within your tradition. Yeah. Because, you know, they're going to be, um, you know, they're going to be making mistakes along the way and they're going to be assuming certain views and doing special pleading and all, all of the rest yeah, as re well. Read everything charitably but yeah. critically, yeah. engaging it, trying to to take a second-order level of thought to the discussion. Yeah. I remember at the, when I was in seminary, I was uh, I may have told the story before, but I, I remember I was in, in, the, in the, the bookstore and I was thumbing through some critical commentaries, you know, written by a scholar who didn't believe in the Bible's claims about history or authorship or all kinds of things. And um, I remember another student came up and kind of, you know, it, well, in a well-meaning way said, you know, you need to be really careful with that right. commentary. Right. Kind of like, I, I just, I see that you look, he even said, I think I was picking it up and was like walking toward the register. And he goes, and he had been watching me and he's mm -hmm. like, I, I see that you might buy that. Yeah. I just want you to be very, now to a certain extent, 
I trust the brother that he was he was wanting my best. Yeah. Right. And yet at the same time, I hope if I hope that after three years in seminary, they've been equipped, a student's been equipped well enough to be able to engage mm-hmm. with views, you mm-hmm. know, even outside of their tradition. Yeah. You know, and be able to evaluate those. Thinking critically is a very important skill in all of this. Absolutely. It takes time. Yeah. You know, it takes not just getting done with the book, but really thinking about it. No. But it's time well spent because you you both learn and contribute to the conversation as yeah. a whole. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing I'd say is read at your level, mm. uh, or at least read at the level of the conversation that you're participating in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the thing I'll get a lot of times in papers is um, uh, citations of like a study Bible. Well, you're, you're in seminary now, <laughs> right. and it's not to say there's, we're not being pejorative. We're not looking down at study Bibles, but that's not the kind of conversation that we're having here. You need to read at the level that you are, you are a participant in. So how about Wikipedia articles? Wikipedia, you should be, <laughs> you should be editing those articles, not, right. <laughs> not citing them. Right, right. Um, because that's, the, that's actually, you, you might not feel like it, but that's the level that you're at. You, mm-hmm. you are learning to become an expert in the field. And for a lot of your congregation, you are the expert. Mm-hmm. You, are the, you are the person in the congregation to whom they will come yeah. with detailed questions about theology, about the Bible. And so you need to read at and engage at that expert level, even That's if you're right. not passing that down to yeah. to your congregation. And it, it, you can make the mistake on the other side, too, I suppose. And I require a certain number, number of academic journals to be mm-hmm. interacted with in okay. one of my programs, one of my strict. classes. Well, I got the question, so how many do we have to cite? Yeah. So I got it so many times that I finally said cite or five or six or whatever yeah. it is. <clears throat> and then what you would see is students who had never had Hebrew or Greek making very complicated, <laughs> you know, point about the Hebrew yeah. text and then citing this article. And I go to him, I say, you have no idea if that's yeah. true or not. You're just regurgitating this right. thing you read. You know, don't, if you don't know Hebrew and Greek, don't cite as if you do, Yeah. you know, now most, most people listening to this, um, won't, won't be tempted to do that, but Perhaps you might. Uh, so yeah, right. Stick with stick in the area. Stick to knowing what you're saying. Right. Right. Yeah. If you can verify it or follow up or engage right. with the material on a productive level, in yeah. a constructive way, then great. If you, you can engage with a ton of academic research, right. but not know the details of of Greek or Hebrew syntax. So don't build an argument off of Greek right. and Hebrew syntax. Well, you, you just actually, so now we're, we're touching on something that just opened up. I re- didn't realize I have this many feelings about this. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so bear with me. Yeah, no, go for um, it. So the, yeah, the, and the other thing being, this is another, so now we're bouncing and ping-ponging back and forth. This is right. conversations with students. The other one being not that they're citing an article that they really have no way of evaluating because they haven't studied in that field. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of it, where they don't cite or they, they don't make any decisions about a text because they're not a commentator, they're not a scholar. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I get that regularly, too. Well, I don't know if this guy is right or this guy because, you know, this commentator versus this commentator. Right. I'm like, well, you do have you, – you've been in seminary. You're taking these classes. You've got critical thinking skills. Right. You can posit. You can humbly – yeah. Posit an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can say this humble reviewer believes and then right. say something, you know, 
Um, and you're not staking your life on this. You're not staking. And this is a seminary paper at the end right. of the day. And if you say something that I show you later is an error, you know, and then it's okay. No one's going to hold up your ordination as a result mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Yeah. Unless it's really bad. <laughs> no, but, you know, I, I, I want to tell them, try it on. You know, take the bike for a spin yeah. around around the building. <laughs> you know, get get your uh, get your balance because you're gonna you're gonna need to start being able to make these decisions as you're teaching and preaching. And so, start exercising it now when it's safe. Because if you mess up here, it's okay. We'll, yeah, we'll, we're, we'll we're here to you. yeah, we're here to catch you. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know you as you're writing and engaging that material, your conclusion should be in proportion to your certainty. Right. right? So. If there's an area that, like, okay, this is going to require Greek syntax for me to be really conclusive on, don't be really, con- and you don't know Greek syntax, yeah. you, then you attenuate your your certainty by that by mm-hmm. the, by that proportion. Okay, right. I, th- this is something I'd have to study more to be certain, but my gut is X, Y, or Z. Right, and that mm-hmm. that's a good place to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've got you've still got questions, and the presence of questions doesn't mean you can't speak to an issue that's right it just means you need to be humble right and also and what it helps you do is acknowledge that the issue is there right and that's half of scholarship too even is saying you, you may not tie up every loose end but to say i acknowledge that that this is still a question mm-hmm. but we'll set that aside yep. for now yeah you know to move yep. on to the next thing yeah but, i mean it's it's funny as someone who early in life loved reading novels loved reading fantasy mm-hmm. as a kid mm-hmm. you know tolkien and narnia and, and tons of other really cheap cheap fantasy <laughs> novels you, that i can't be can't tolkien be found anymore cheap fantasy <laughs> no no i I'm, I'm those are the two. Oh, lewis and tolkien are the ones i'm i'm, I'm willing to mention you know, uh, <laughs> to Dune, name and claim Dune, you know um but never considered myself interested in nonfiction. right right you know, which is scholarly work historical work that kind of thing it's really remarkable how, you know, over the course of a life that becomes the thing you basically do yep. all the time. Yep. And um, it is learned. You can learn it. You can develop it. You can get better at it. Um, but it's something that I think a lot of people, and I'm noticing more and more with our students these days, it's it's hard, It's a bigger lift. They, they're mm-hmm. not used to reading as much unless they did maybe liberal arts in their undergrad. It's hard for them to sit down with the, with the sustained argument. And so mm-hmm. it's something, don't lose, don't lose heart, mm-hmm. you know go after it you can learn it and you and it can become you know it yeah. can become something that comes easily to you yeah and then we have another crop of students because you still read fiction you still read oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah um we have another kind of there's another kind of bin of people who nonfiction is their bag right yeah but fiction or poetry yeah this is just this is ornamental language is flowery right just lies what's the point what's the point and I, and I, i'd say to them no actually read broadly um mm-hmm. being Reading fiction makes you a good storyteller, which makes you a good preacher. Um, Reading poetry uh, helps you to love words and the way words work um, and evoke certain emotions. We've talked about that when we did the Psalms. Um, Right. You know, so reading with with a breadth of genre, I think, actually really does help you both as a person, but actually be a better... Um, conversationalist in the right. in, in the technical in right. the in the academic, right? So right. don't don't in your in your love of the nonfiction ignore the the more imaginative arts. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Well said. Well, it's been great having this conversation. 
look forward to the next one. Until then, take care. If you'd like to know more about RTS, please go to our website, rts.edu forward slash Washington. If you'd like to ask questions to the podcast or pose anything to us, whether it's on study habits in seminary or any other topic, you can go to the link on the show notes.